My favorite news to listen to, you're either going to laugh or you're going to cry, is Fox News, which I listen to on satellite radio. And I'll tell you why. I don't believe that Fox News is the truth. Like you said, we're in a post-truth world. But I'm actually better at understanding things through Fox News's distortions than I am through some of the more subtle distortions of other places. Plus, I just find it from a totally non-journalistic perspective, sometimes more interesting and less boring. It's difficult to be able to understand what we should know and what we need to know. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Field Tripping. Today, we are doing something different. The first of a number of changes that you're going to see start to emerge in the podcast. Well, just about every episode we've done to date has been about psychedelic and non-ordinary experiences. Today, we are leaning into what our episode with Michael Pollan gave birth to, a podcast that is all about seeing things through the lens of other people's eyes and from different perspectives. In that regard, that's what psychedelics are all about anyway, seeing the world and ourselves with new eyes. A theme that often gets tied up into psychedelics is freedom. In fact, the core essence of Field Trip as a brand and as a company is freedom. Freedom from and freedom to. Freedom from depression, anxiety, and isolation. Freedom to be seen, feel connected, and be alive. But the conversation of freedom has also been coming up on a macro sense around the pandemic, around mandates, about protests, and around Russia. That is the focus of today's conversation because some very influential people from Joe Rogan to Anthony Pompliano to my very brief two-sentence conversation homie, Elon Musk, have made some pretty provocative statements about the state of freedom, particularly in my home country of Canada. And those comments warrant discussion, meaningful discussion, because in my mind, they missed the mark by a mile, maybe even a thousand miles. As many miles as Elon hopes to bore with the boring company, and it's because they lacked nuance. What we've achieved in this Twitterified world of 280 characters or less is way more information and basically zero nuance. So today joining us on the podcast is my friend and legal analyst, Aaron Solomon. Before I introduce Aaron, here's your no nuance reminder to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And as always, if you love the show, leave us your thoughts and a review on Apple Podcasts. It's much appreciated and helps us reach new people. Now back to Aaron. Aaron is a lawyer, the chief legal analyst for Esquire Digital, and the editor of today's Esquire. He has taught entrepreneurship at McGill University and the University of Pennsylvania, and was elected to Fast Case 50, recognizing the top 50 legal innovators in the world. Aaron has been featured in CBS News, CNBC, USA Today, ESPN, TechCrunch, and plenty more. So Aaron, thank you for joining us today, and welcome to Field Tripping. Ronan, thanks for having me. Do they merit discussion? I mean, I know that we're going to discuss these things, and that's wonderful. But I don't know. I, I thought that 2022, we would do better than having to discuss what Joe Rogan says, which I guess is kind of jumping around. But I personally couldn't care less what Joe Rogan says. I enjoyed him on uh, that television show where he would supervise people eating insects. That was fun. Or hanging off helicopters. Um, I thought he was very good at that. And then he seems to have lost the thread. Or... He found the several million dollar a year thread and maybe some people who follow him lost the thread. I don't know. I guess we'll dig into that today. Yeah, that's exactly what we're going to dig into. But let's save that one for a little bit later. Uh, I'm going to hop into my first question, which is this is a conversation that came about 
Because one of the things that I've come to have serious reservations about is large influencers taking positions on subjects that they aren't really informed about. So before we get into it, I'd love for you to share your bona fides. So here's the thing about me, honestly. I truly have no bona fides as you describe them. The thing with me is I honestly have no qualifications. I know a little bit about a lot of things. And on a very good day, I can put four or six or 10 of these things together to form a cogent thought or actually help define the zeitgeist. And the ways that I do that is I write stuff every day. So you mentioned some of the publications that I write in. I don't consider myself a writer. I don't consider myself a journalist, but I actually do get stuff published every day. Some of these things are in influential publications. And every one of them is where the law intersects with a bunch of other things. And I guess the end result is that people kind of like it. I certainly like writing about it. It's a way of getting kind of my thoughts out on electronic paper. But as far as other qualifications, I mean, I did go to school. Uh, so I have papers. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like my poodle. I got papers. <laughs> you come from good genetic stock. Is that what you're saying? The breeding was relatively good. I mean, it was Eastern European Jewish, which, which really isn't in favor these days if we watch the news. But nonetheless, I try. Um, I'm back in my hometown of Montreal. I've lived all over the world. And I returned here from almost four years in Berlin, just when the pandemic hit. All right. Where else have you lived? I know you've lived abroad and I think it's worth noting this because I think this enables you to bring different perspectives and, and pretty grounded thoughts around some of the different dynamics at play here. I've lived in places like Beijing, Stockholm, Berlin that I've mentioned, all over the United States, all over different parts of Canada. I speak parts of six languages. I can do business in three or four, depending on the day. I really do think I bring an international, some might say globalist, um, as someone who's lived in lots of different places. And certainly my almost four years in Berlin were very eye-opening. They weren't what I expected they would be. But you also spent time in Vietnam. And I know because you gave me the recommendation to go to Mimi's on Girard for faux back in the day. Um, and so I appreciate that. Uh, You're very welcome. <laughs> what was eye-opening about your experience in Berlin? I arrived in Berlin in 2017 when things were starting to heat up in North America that kind of affected one's comfort level of being, you know, someone who doesn't hide the fact that they're Jewish and someone who is not apolitical and has opinions, lots of opinions on stuff. And I got to Berlin and, you know, people in Germany, particularly Berlin, which is compared, compared to the rest of Germany, a large cosmopolitan city is, you know, Berlin's a very open place. And Berlin changed pretty quickly when I was there. You heard about the synagogue bombings in Germany, the rise of the far left AFD party, which basically translates to the alternative for Germany. And it's a very far right alternative. We lived in a beautiful building in an old part of the former East Germany, where the Stasi, secret police executives and higher ups used to live. All of the streets were named after composers and it was right near a beautiful park and lake. And it was only about six months in that I realized that uh, the head of the local Nazi party, not actually just far right, literally Nazi party, lived in our building as well. And it was, it was quite a learning experience. Did, did you uh, cross paths with him in the elevator? All the time. Because one of the great things about Germany that is so different from living in North America is package delivery. Package delivery is an absolute nightmare. You would think that DHL, where it's kind of their home turf, would get it right. And they're the worst of all of the package delivery folks. 
So you always end up going to your neighbors to try to find packages. And this guy would always come to my place and he'd always look very sheepish. And this is before I knew who he was, but he had a pretty good sense from the mezuzah on my door that I was one of them. Uh, I'd imagine that would give it away. And he was super, always super, super polite to me when I saw him in person. Um, I just think that we had kind of different political leanings, shall we say. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point, though, which is it's really easy to cast people as the other until you have to look them in the eye, at which point you realize that we're maybe not so different after all. Very well said. Totally agree. And I think that more of that understanding would really help us where we are kind of, you know, a week into a very big invasion. Yeah, we we will get to that. Um, But let's let's take a step back. So the impetus for this specific conversation is I had reached out to you over comments that are being made by people like Elon Musk and Anthony Pompliato comparing Canada to Nazi Germany or, or China because some of the steps taken in respect of the trucker convoy. Before we get into a conversation uh, about the merits of those comparisons of Canada to others, could you give us a little bit of a background into what was going on with the trucker convoy from your perspective? Who was there? Who the participants were? Because I think the facts of the circumstances, in all circumstances, mind you, but in this case in particularly and for this conversation, matter quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, and this this goes back to speaking about my absence of bona fides. Even though I don't have them, I managed to do probably 40 to 50 interviews as well as writing some pieces, mostly in the U.S., but internationally about what was happening a few weeks ago with this trucker convoy. And it was very, very interesting because, you know, we saw all these numbers, you know, former NHL players were tweeting, there's 50,000 trucks heading to Ottawa. And we had this kind of myth of the convoy before the convoy arrived. And the convoy did arrive in Ottawa. It arrived with literal bouncy castles and hot tubs and children who probably would have been taken away from anybody during this experience, unless they were kind of white middle-class Canadians. And they descended upon Ottawa and decided to do public mischief. And the only reason that it ended up getting in the international spotlight at all, because believe me, I know tons of Americans and work with them every single day. and No one had any idea what was going on in Ottawa. And parenthetically, not many knew what Ottawa was. Well, all this was going on until the Ottawa police just decided for whatever directive or reason that they weren't even going to try to do their jobs and allow this thing to foment into something much larger than it ever needed to be. The good news is, by the way, another parenthetical thing here, is that, you know, the United States has had all these conversations about defunding the police and the correct roles of the police force. Really, in the past three years, it's kind of really come to a head. We haven't had as many of those conversations in Canada. Yes, we've had them in places like Toronto. But what happened in Ottawa um, really did bring a lot of kind of rational people to say, why are we spending money on police? They're not doing anything. I said to um, a large American TV network a couple of weeks ago, the day before the trucker convoy, if I would have driven from Montreal to Ottawa and left my large, heavy sedan outside the Chateau Laurier Hotel, probably about 15 or 20 minutes, it would have been towed or being given a massive ticket. Evidently, two or three days later, I could have driven a semi and left it there for weeks. I didn't know. Nobody told me. So why was it that the police were doing sweet fuck all, for lack of a better term? I don't know if we're ever going to know. I mean, everybody talks about the fact that there's going to be an inquest. There could have been lots of reasons why. They could have been told provincially or otherwise leave these folks alone. They might have thought the whole thing was going to go away if they didn't get involved or antagonize. 
But the reality is for people who lived in and near downtown Ottawa, it became a significant disruption. People weren't able to go to work and earn money. Malls were closed. It really got out of hand quickly. You asked before kind of who these trucker convoy people were. Well, it's not as easy as a lot of people, particularly south of the border, think to, you know, put them into one group. I think that eventually we're going to understand more about like who they vote for, which is probably PPC and conservative, much more than liberal and NDP within Canada and our multi-party system. And I think that the one thing they spoke about at great length, and I loved watching the trucker convoy live feeds on YouTube. I was watching one channel where it was like eight live feeds because if, you know, I don't drink by the way, but if I did drink and I took a shot with every time somebody used the word freedom, I would have been able to watch for like 38 seconds. I'd be hammered. Um, but it was about freedom in whatever kind of incarnation one believes freedom should be. One of the things I was reading is that there was, and, and, and probably the impetus for the police kind of standing down in a particular way is that the organization behind the trucker convoy was, wasn't just a, a whole bunch of freedom, love and good time looking for truckers. Uh, but that there was actually like a very sophisticated, you know, conscious anti-establish anti-establishment movement that was perceived to be plotting, you know, towards something along the lines of an overthrow of the Canadian government or fundamentally shifting the underlying structures of, of the Canadian government in a very non-democratic way. Had you heard that as well? Well, I had. And the other thing we have to remember is at one point, it looked like they had $9.8 million, the vast majority of which came from the United States behind them in both the GoFundMe and things to follow. And then, as we know, we'll talk about that later, legislation came, which, which prevented that money from getting through. But that's kind of a big deal. You can sit in your bouncy tub for a while when your organization is funded by $9.8 million and growing. We also know something about these GoFundMes is they tend to become viral. So while it went from literally like 25,000 to 100,000 to a few million, it can go from 9.8 million to 98 million pretty quickly particularly when there may be nefarious elements involved, more nefarious than the people in the hot tubs. Right. So, so we have these truckers uh, having a good time and, and maybe um, some uh, more calculating people plotting something a little bit more robust. I mean, this is just allegations, so we have no confirmation about it, but it did seem that at least some journalists had a, had a pretty good beat on, on there being kind of subdivision of the trucker convoy plotting or talking about or contemplating more sophisticated kind of things than bouncy castles and hot tub. And what did the government do in response, the Canadian government? Let's stop for a second and say that Canada is a very large country physically, but we're really quite small. We have fewer people in Canada than California. So I guess sometimes I have to give a pass, particularly to Americans, when they just don't understand how Canada works. But like the New York Times was getting it wrong every single day. This, at least at one point, was the paper of record. What Canada ended up doing is Prime Minister Trudeau, Justin Trudeau, for those not from Canada, his father used to be prime minister a couple times as well decided to enact this thing called the Emergencies Act, which comes from 1988. And it was the first time ever that the Emergencies Act had been enacted. There was a predecessor called the War Measures Act, which was enacted here, particularly in Quebec in 1970, with the FLQ crisis. But this was the first time the Emergencies Act was enacted. Now, this allowed a lot of police coordination 
among various different elements from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, as I always have to explain to Americans, not all of them are on horses, but they do have lovely horses. Um, we even have horse police here in Montreal in the park, and they're fantastic. And it allowed them to do a bunch of things. But most importantly, it gave the federal government power to regulate some financial things that absent the declaration of the Emergencies Act, they wouldn't have been able to regulate. And this bothered some people because some of those things people felt might become more permanent, such as trying to trace and regulate cryptocurrencies. But it also gave them the power to freeze things like the GoFundMe's. And what's your assessment of this in your knowledge of having lived in Germany, being chum chum neighbor, neighbors with uh, the head of the Nazi party there, uh, as, and and the comparison to, to China between Canada and China in, in terms of the execution of these measures as an assault on freedom? Well, I'll start with kind of a blanket statement, which is that in no way is Canada Nazi Germany. You know what we should compare with Nazi Germany? Nothing. Only Nazi Germany, because it was Nazi and it was Germany. Let's leave history the way it is and understand that the era of Nazism in Germany during the war is a thing within itself. And we don't have to compare every single thing we see on the news today to Nazi Germany. That's number one. Number two, yeah, I've lived in China. I left China right at, right at the time of the Beijing Olympics. This is the 2008 Beijing Olympics. And when I, I've been to China over 50 times. So the China that I first started to see as a visitor, in which almost everybody was dressed like you would expect Mao to be dressed in very drab grays, to the China that I've seen many times even since I am no longer living there, which is like Shanghai is a fashion capital at the level of Paris and New York and London, it's a very, very different place than it used to be. I can tell you that there was a Jewish cafe in Berlin that was really quite nice. And the way that as tensions started to heat up that it was dealt with is it's totally cordoned off. And you've got to be nuts to even try to get into this Jewish cafe with people there with automatic weapons. That to me isn't really freedom. Do I really want to go to that cafe that badly? There's lots of other great places to eat in in Berlin. Uh, that said, I think that Canada has been dealing with things in a uniquely Canadian way, which have nothing to do with the way things are done in China or Nazi Germany. And can, can you go into that? Because uh, one of the things that when I read these comments, I was like, you guys are missing the nuance of it, which is like, it's not specifically about the truckers, you know, take away the audience conversation though, because I have no idea exactly who was there. But what struck me though, is that Canada was following a well-established, democratically elected government, implementing a law that uh, had been passed and enacted by a democratically elected parliament in a proper fashion, followed by a debate in parliament um, conducted by a minority government. So they couldn't just impose their will uh, to assess the validity of imposing the War Measures Act. And to me, you know, while the invocation of the War Measures Act did potentially put constraints on certain individual freedoms, certain people for a temporary period. That is perfectly consistent with notions of freedom and democracy based on the evolution of, of how the Emergencies Act came to be in effect. Well, first, I have to address what you talked about in the beginning, which is nuance. And I'm sorry that you didn't hear it. I want to be the one to break the news to you. But nuance died. It was around November 2016. There was a presidential election and something happened that we never thought could. And we thought it was funny as it was unfolding that night. And then it kind of wasn't. 
And so Nuance, I think, departed on that night. And I don't know if Nuance is ever coming back. So I think that we do have to be much more linear than we would like to be. So you did that well in the last part of what you said is you basically said, listen, a lot of people, particularly, again, south of the border, felt that by enacting the Emergencies Act, Canada was suspending civil liberties. But there's no correlation between the two. In fact, if anything, civil liberties are more in the spotlight under the Emergencies Act with what the government can and can't do. There was nothing that was done that was wrong. The problem is, is that the opposition are a bunch of whiners. And even when Prime Minister Trudeau, who had the right to keep the Emergencies Act in validity for 30 days, canceled it three and a half days after it was approved in Parliament by a not even close vote, instead of saying, you know what? The leader of this country showed restraint in only keeping the Emergencies Act for the amount of time that it was needed to get rid of these truckers. Instead, what they said was, and of course, anybody listening can guess, well, it just shows they never needed the Emergencies Act in the first place. Needed or not, it came into place. It cleared up the problem under that same time frame, and then we removed the act. And if we need to put the Emergencies Act back in for something else next week, I hope that the prime minister, whoever it is, does. They had seven days to get it to a vote within parliament. They did that. No laws were broken. No procedures were broken. And the end goal that you wanted to achieve through the act was achieved. Let's give it a nine out of 10. I don't honestly see what the problem is. And that has nothing to do with where I sit on the political spectrum. Yeah, no, I get you. I guess the argument that could be made, and I know that this is a big conversation and is proportionality, which was the invocation of the emergency act, which, you know, based on this conversation, I think perfectly consistent with a, a, a well functioning democratic government. It's not a, a criticism of the democratic nature of it, but was it disproportional uh, to the circumstances, which is, you know, the prime minister sitting can invoke it for 30 days for probably just about anything he or she may want. Um, and so I guess there's the question of the proportionality, which I think ties back to why was it necessary in your mind uh, or in the mind of Justin Trudeau and the liber liberal government? So it was definitely disproportionate or disproportional in relation to when the trucker convoy descended upon Ottawa. As I said, one of the things, one of the nuances within the Emergencies Act is that it can only be enacted when no law on the books is enough. So people could make an argument saying, well, the laws in and around Ottawa were enough. Yeah, but no one was enforcing them. And it took the Emergencies Act to empower a response that integrated the OPP and the RCMP and the Ottawa police, and if necessary, which it wasn't, the military, to deal with the situation. So by the time the Emergencies Act was enacted, it was necessary and proportional. Was it when the whole thing started? No, there, there would have been much easier ways to disperse the convoy than what ended up happening. And maybe through an inquest or whatever, we learn more about that for next time. Right. Are there any inclinations about why the Ottawa police sat on their hands? And I'm sure I've heard the same thing that you or anybody else has heard, that they were told to stand down. Uh, I, the other thing that I heard is that a lot of them, and we saw this on TV clips, but, you know, like, who knows what percentage of the clips that we saw were representative of the force, that some of the people really agreed with the people in the convoy and didn't want to do anything for them. We saw this white guy in his 30s after his SUV was pulled up onto a tow truck. 
he's yelling at the police saying, I know my rights, I know my rights, and then they let him go. <laughs> so, I mean, if they would have done what they did once the Emergencies Act came in, which was just basically tow a lot of vehicles, which, of course, the Emergencies Act also gave them power to end up paying towing services to get rid of these kinds of trucks. It did a whole bunch of different things. I mean, I, I don't know why the Ottawa police didn't do more in the beginning. They were probably overwhelmed operationally, logistically, and strategically. Right. Fair enough. Uh, one of the uh, siren cries of, of the trucker convoy uh, was rallying against the notion of mandates, vaccine mandates, mass mandates, and all that kind of stuff. Just curious to know, what your perspective on those mandates are and if you have any kind of inclination or can I at least speak to whether such mandates are consistent with the constitution of Canada. We're just talking about Canada right now, but also like democratically held notions and ideals, which again, I think tie into this conversation of freedom. So, you know, it's funny. I went to law school in the United States, not in Canada. And it's very funny to hear all the conversation over the past few months, Canadians talking about a lot of these people were in the convoy. And I know they became memes on social media, but many Canadians were talking about their First Amendment rights. And I had to break the news to some of them on social media that Canada doesn't have a First Amendment, or at least not the one that you're thinking about. Um, when I lived in China, I regularly wore masks. And everybody in China and Hong Kong regularly wears masks. You do it as a courtesy when you're not feeling well. So the notion of wearing a mask to protect myself and protect others isn't a problem. And in fact, even though a lot of people are lifting mask mandates right now in the beginning of March, I will freely tell you that I have two years worth of high quality masks left, and I'll be masking up for a very, very long time. I don't want to get COVID. I know that there are people, and I know that there are intelligent countries like Reykjavik through Iceland right now. They're saying the best defense for the nation is that everybody gets COVID. But I've got certain health issues that I don't want to deal with COVID with, and I don't plan on getting it, and I haven't gotten it so far. So um, I'm okay with things like being thrice vaccinated and being very well masked up. And I understand other people's perspective, feeling that, you know, they don't want to sacrifice eating in a restaurant to maybe save somebody's grandmother in a, in a long-term care facility. I don't know. I mean, we approach life differently. I'm not sure, personally, that freedom, this amorphous notion of freedom, actually sit at, sits at the nexus of these conversations like people think it is. I think to an extent, it's about being a mensch, being a good person or not being a mensch. But yeah, I mean, I guess it is frustrating to people, especially after two years in, that we can't do everything that we want to do because there's a global pandemic. Any thoughts on in terms of, and I think this is well established by virtue of the fact that you've never seen a court uh, do anything about these mandates, but any, any sort of comments on the, on the legality or constitutionality of mandates in the first place? Well, I mean, first of all, I think it depends nation by nation. I think if we want to speak about it generally within the kind of the democratic framework, that's kind of why we elect democratic governments to make certain laws that are there for our best interest. Some of those will include protection of ourselves and of the groups. I mean, sometimes government has to do those kinds of things. The problem is, is that when we look back at the COVID pandemic, we are looking at it through a historic lens. And every country, with no exception, made mistakes. Some countries made a lot of mistakes. Some countries are still making mistakes and some made comparatively few. But we're seeing now, even in countries like New Zealand, where at least science and the medicine says they made comparatively few mistakes, are dealing with, by comparison, massive outbreaks right now. So the problem is, 
is that, you know, these things haven't gone away yet. They're not about to go away anytime in the near future. Who knows how many booster shots we're all going to have. So I guess we're either going to fit ourselves into camps where we're going to go along with the best judgment of the people hired and engaged by the governments that we hopefully democratically elect, or we're going to protest against them. And that could be in the form of trucker convoys or taking our masks off and getting into fights with people at Costco. To me, this whole conversation, along with really the rise of, of George Bush Jr. and ultimately Trumpism feels like a movement being driven by people who feel disenfranchised about many of the things that are happening in the world from economic shifts to democratic shifts to cultural values shifts. One of the words that is being tossed around a bunch is freedom. And a lot of people are pointing to the decentralization of everything in part facilitated by cryptocurrencies as a big part of the solution to maintain freedom. What's your take on on that statement and what's your take on cryptocurrencies generally, both in terms of whether it's a massive Ponzi scheme or whether they have an essential role to play in the future, you know, continued legacy of, of democracy? I have no problem with the notion of crypto itself. I think NFTs are kind of cool. I like DAOs. In fact, there's a great article that I wrote in Fortune magazine about a decentralized autonomous organization trying to buy an NBA team. So I'm very open to these kinds of things. I do have experience with some people in the crypto community who I think are kind of icky, and they believe that their own individual freedom to do whatever they want is more important than other stuff. But I think that's the case where people kind of self-identify as mavericks whether it's cryptocurrency or, or dealing with anything else. I have no issue with decentralization. I think you can have elements of society that are decentralized and for it to still be democratic. And I empathize with people who feel that one of the legacies of the Emergencies Act might be government looking at things like crypto more closely than they otherwise would have. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, so I guess I kind of had mixed feelings about it, but I have no problem with, with crypto in itself. I feel like in this conversation, people who are crypto advocates or otherwise people who are disenfranchised group that feels like government and society is encroaching too much on, on their individual liberties is the bastion savior against this encroachment of government. But it does seem to pose an existential or it could pose an existential threat to the structure of government or the, the implementation of controls through government, which as much as one loves freedom, I think we all recognize that some control through government needs to be established. Otherwise, there's really no government in the first place. So what's the point of it? And so how do you see that playing out? Uh, I know you're not a fortune teller and we can't predict the future, but I'm interesting to hear your thoughts. Well, I just take issue with one thing you said. I'm not sure all of us believe in kind of the sanctity and importance of government. Certainly a lot of people in the convoy, many of whom, by the way, are sitting in jail right now. Uh, pending appeal hearings for bail that have been going on for a while, necessarily believe in the importance of government. That's one. I think that the disenfranchised fall into multiple groups. I don't think that there's a huge correlation between people who were involved with the convoy on the ground uh, being super active in crypto. At least that's not my feeling at all. What I think is that there's a lot of other people around the world who feel disenfranchised because they should be generation of people isn't going to have the same quality of life as other people. I mean, look at the city that you're in. What sharp young people, absent wealthy parents, are ever going to be able to afford to uh, buy something to live in in Toronto? 
These are very valid reasons for feeling disenfranchised from your peers and from government and from our society that go well beyond the decentralization of currency. But I do agree with what you said. I mean, when you move away from fiat money and you move into something more ethereal with more and more people willing to accept it, including Elon Musk for the purchase of his vehicles or spaceships or um, SUVs that are never going to be built, you know, who knows? Sometimes they take crypto, sometimes they don't. It really depends on, on which direction it's going or how he's feeling on, on that day. I think you're right. I, I think the assessment that um, the people who are actually freezing their butts off in Ottawa in the middle of winter to, to protest mandates and the people who are actually building and advocating and, and creating the foundations of a, a functioning cryptocurrency and blockchain infrastructure are not the same groups. You know, based on my very unscientific uh, assessment of it, it's the poorest white people uh, out there and the richest white people, both taking the same perspective. Who knew Who knew that uh, those two, two groups would align behind a, a common cause, even though I imagine the potential benefits of, of that alignment are going to fall to the smaller, wealthier group and come probably at the expense of the much larger, less fortunate group. You're right on. And it's so funny. So when I look at Canadian politics, which again, I'm not an expert in, but I look at the rise of Maxime Bernier's People's Party of Canada. One thing that's just very, very apparent to me, and I bring that up because I, I think it's shown that a lot of people in the convoy support those ideologies. As long as the PPC stays around, the Conservatives never win another federal election. It's going to become a generational thing. We've seen this in many other countries. They're going to take enough of the Conservative vote to divide it, and liberals are going to win. I mean, that's just the way that it is. Whether it's 6% or 9% or 11%, this is a percentage of the conservative party's vote they can't afford not to have. Now, these parties, the conservatives and the PPC, are far more aligned than the PPC and liberals or the conservatives and liberals. Yet, they don't understand that nuance, which is if we continue to operate as these two separate parties and ideologies, while together we would have enough votes for a majority, we won't ever actually even have a minority government. That seems like basic math. And I think that sometimes when these things, we don't understand the practicalities, we let them get overridden by philosophies. It's interesting because, I mean, it's a self-perpetuating cycle because we've gone through this before. We had uh, the Conservative Party of Canada and then we had the Reform Party of Canada, which basically resulted in the Conservative Party or the Progressive Conservatives not winning an election. Uh, and then they merged back together after realizing that, um, you know, standing on the same side of the equation meant that they would never win an election in a parliamentary system. Uh, and now we have that split out again. And, and the unfortunate thing is that I think with each iteration of this evolution, the, the split out party continues to pull the more centrist party into more and more very extreme, very dogmatic ideals. And so instead of having the hoteling equilibrium, which for, for listeners suggests that, you know, in any sort of polit political spectrum, both sides will move towards the center because that's where you're going to capture the most vote. We actually have the opposite seeming to happen, which is Political parties are moving in opposite directions to pander to the, the most extreme sides of that, um, because otherwise you you get this fractioning and factoring that happens um, that creates more parties. Because it is funny, like in, in Canada, um, if you look on the political spectrum, probably 70% of Canadians lean 
left, center left. But in a parliamentary system before the PPC came out, uh, you, we had 10 years of conservative government because it was the left side of the equation that was splitting the vote. Um, the conservative government uh, party with 30% of the vote could actually control the entire government. It's, it's, it's a weird function of, of, of a parliamentary system. I mean, hear a lot of people talking in the U S being like, we have a country of 300 million people. How can two political parties possibly represent all the interests of uh, 300 million people? And, and the answer is you can't, but it seems like it's the inevitable outcome of democracy that you're going to end up with too. Otherwise you end up with a whole bunch of people fighting and, and not necessarily um, democratic values getting expressed because of those consensus, general consensus on one side of the equation, as opposed to the other. Uh, you just need one small emergent uh, party to take 30% of the vote and you win. And by the way, this goes back to my experience in Germany. So by the time I left Germany, this ultra-ring party, the AFD, had won several of the most recent state elections. So, I mean, we're talking about 25 to 28 percent of the vote, but they actually won the state election. That's not a national election, but these were very close to Berlin. Do you know how scary that was for people within Berlin to not just see the rise of the AFD, but actually see them win? It would be the equivalent of, of something akin to the Nazi party winning the Ontario election. And all of Canada saying, whoa, I mean, that's probably a little bit of an exaggeration because they weren't the largest states, but they were, let's call it Manitoba. That was a lot to deal with when you actually saw the results and pundits all over the world were like, did I just, did I just see that? The FD actually won the state election, not did well, won. And that is something that in 2018, 2019 was difficult to digest. I think we're digesting the same thing in Canada and now we're digesting it with what's happening in, in Russia and Ukraine. One of the people who is held up as a bastion of this conversation, rightly or wrongly, um, and probably somewhat unwittingly, is Joe Rogan. I hadn't paid much attention to Joe Rogan personally until the whole anti-vax conversations. But I was recently reading a Vox article, and I have come to appreciate Vox as, as representing, I think, fairly balanced perspectives on, on things um, uh, that I thought was fascinating. And one of the comments on it was the complicated reality is that Rogan seems to genuinely dislike woke progressive politics and what he perceives as the hypersensitive, overly semantic identity politics of leftism, while also despising Donald Trump and everything he represents. Recognizing that the two aren't mutually exclusive moral vectors is arguably one of Rogan's strengths. He won't cancel you for disagreeing with him. I disagree with myself all the time, he said. What are your thoughts on, on Joe Rogan and what's going on right now with him? My thoughts, first of all, on the Vox piece are that it's ridiculous. Not with what the Vox piece is asserting, but Joe Rogan doesn't think like this. That's like me coming out with a 2,800-word essay on Putin, not Vladimir, but the dish, and saying, one does not understand how jejeune Putin is. Stemming from its ancient Quebec roots, it's, it's cheese and gravy and fries. You either like it, and as a Quebecer, I'm in the camp where I don't like poutine. That's it. It doesn't have to go further than that. Joe Rogan doesn't think like this. Joe Rogan understands that he's making over 10 million, well over $10 million a year doing what he does. I don't believe that Joe Rogan sees himself in the same way that a Jordan Peterson sees himself. I think Joe Rogan realizes that he's fallen into a really pretty great gig. And if he's kind of true to himself, whoever that himself is, 
people are going to resonate with him. Now, I, I don't say this in honestly in an elite way or someone who had a lot of years of formal education, but I implore you, stay in school, kids, because when you stay in school, you have a better chance of not following the Joe Rogans as someone who's going to be, or, or the Peter Thiels, as someone who's going to become your Dalai Lama when maybe you should look a little bit more at, say, the Dalai Lama. I think the bigger question, though, and I think the bigger underlying issue is that we're living in a post-truth world um, and there's no consensus around anything anymore. And it's really hard. And maybe this is the reason that we need to decentralize anything. It's really hard to think about a functioning society when people can't agree on the basic tenets of what is or is not true. And so that's the real conversation, I think, around Joe Rogan and everything here. Because I think all of these things stem from the fact that we live in echo chambers facilitated by social media. We don't get, you know, media can't afford to pay for real reporting anymore. And, and so the quality of reporting becomes more questionable across different themes. And, and it's all clickbait because it's now an attention economy as opposed to an information economy. And, and it's a vexing problem to solve. Uh, and, now, and now we see that with Russia as well. I think I see part of a solution here. So I'm regularly published in quite right-wing publications and quite left-wing publications. I've been on Turkish state television regularly. I've been published and I've been on ultra left. I've been on Christian broadcasting. I've been on ultra left-wing things. I go everywhere because I think it's important that people hear what I have to say and I can couch things in language that they better understand. My favorite news to listen to, you're either going to laugh or you're going to cry, is Fox News, which I listen to on satellite radio. And I'll tell you why. I don't believe that Fox News is the truth. Like you said, we're in a post-truth world. But I'm actually better at understanding things through Fox News's distortions than I am through some of the more subtle distortions of other places. Plus, I just find it from a totally non-journalistic perspective, sometimes more interesting and less boring. It's difficult to be able to understand what we should know and what we need to know. And with, as you said, so many forces out there going for clickbait. Ronan, I've had in the past year several pieces that have been shared more than 50,000 times on social media. That makes that piece by nature influential. And like I said, I'm not an expert necessarily in these things. I'm somebody with opinions and some background who can share my perspective. In some ways, it's kind of scary that I'm getting things that are shared on social media 50,000 times. It's kind of a big deal when you get a piece that's shared 500 times. That's a lot of traffic. I mean, this is the problem, you know, and these are the questions that we're all going to have to grapple with. And I, I don't know. Uh, and, and we certainly see it playing out with, and to some degree with what's been happening in Russia over the last 10 years in terms of influencing elections and all that kind of stuff. And, and now uh, the, the war in the, the Ukraine and when, we were prepping for this conversation. I had sent you a list of questions that we wanted to, to touch on. And, and you said it, it all comes back to, you know, what's going on in Russia or can all be sort of circulated through that. So I'd love to hear your thoughts there. So, I mean, first of all, it, it's it, in my opinion, what, what's happening here is very simple. You've got this guy, Vladimir Putin, and I believe the people, Exactly, not poutine. Although in French, it is P-O-U-T-I-N-E, which is always very confusing <laughs> to spell like the food. Nonetheless, we have Monsieur Poutine. And um, I believe that he's, he's 
could be terminally ill. I think that there's really, truly something wrong with him that would lead him to make these decisions that I ultimately believe, and I'm going to go out here and predict this so people can come back to this podcast, are going to end up in him getting killed by somebody within his own camp. Because the decisions he's making are so irrational and they don't make any sense. So, for example, you've got the Moscow Stock Exchange. They've been closed all week. They're never going to reopen. There was somebody on Russian TV last night who toasted, it was nice knowing you, Moscow Stock Exchange, because it's dead. It's done. There's no way the Moscow Stock Exchange can ever reopen because stocks, Russian stocks in London went down 98.3% this week. The stock exchange in Moscow will be open for an hour and it'll die. So you may as well just kill it off the way that it is. The decisions being made by Russia are so irrational. So it's up to the rest of the world to decide how we want to deal with this in our furtherance of the continued existence of democracy. Economic sanctions are great and economic sanctions work, but they're slow. So it's going to be oligarch number seven or nine or 19 who ends up engineering Putin's demise. And then there's going to be reparations that get paid. And hopefully something like this doesn't happen again. But since we never learned from history, it will. It's all remarkable to watch. And I would counsel anybody watching this broadcast to not let yourselves get separated from it because it's not going to disappear in a week. It's going to go on for months, probably. And it's extremely painful and lives are being lost every single day for no reason. And how does this tie back into the the broader conversation we're having here around, you know, freedom, post-truth, um, ideals, conver- conversations, themes? Well, because the internal message within Russia is that this is a counteroffensive being done to cleanse Ukraine of Nazis. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. That's the message being put within Russia, that this is essentially a counterintelligence operation to remove Nazis. Um, when we all in the rest of the world see what it is. I mean, it's remarkable. I see things every day, like the central train station in London and in Berlin. Sorry, there, there are Berliners coming out to meet people from, from Ukraine at the train station and take them in. I mean, this is the same train station that I would take trains from three or four times a week from work to go all over Europe because the train was so much better than the plane, right? Take the train to work in Paris, take the train to Munich, do all these things. And now it's, for refugees coming through Poland. And it's 2022. So this is all surreal, but we can't let ourselves be comfortable with that surrealism because then we'll be equally comfortable the next time there's a trucker convoy, the next time somebody in Canada decides to do an act of domestic terrorism. How do we change that? How do we not let it be surreal the next time? Well, the first thing that I said before, and I wasn't being you know, facetious is education. We need to become better consumers of information, um, which is very difficult to do, as you said, in a clickbait world where you're not really sure what's true. You're not sure that an image of a bomb that's being shared today was from a different war. Um, you're not sure that a synagogue that you see being blown up was the one from Germany or one in Ukraine or wherever the case is. Um, the other thing is I think we have to have more open conversations like this. And as I said, I mean, don't just follow what I'm saying, but Look at many different sources for your information and take a little bit from everywhere. I mean, not everything. Again, I'm not defending Fox News, but I've seen things on Fox News where I say, you know what? I can't believe I'm saying this to myself. Their coverage on this little micro issue was probably better and more truthful, maybe accidentally, than anything else that I've seen. And again, I'm saying this as somebody who in the global political spectrum 
would definitely be right of center, but you can tell this sometimes from the things that I write. What are the sources that you go to? Because um, they're just definitely sources that are going to be more credible, more worthwhile uh, th- than others. So, for anyone listening, would you say like, "Hey, if you're gonna if you're gonna listen to my advice um, uh, on this, here's where I would start." So, I think I honestly think that Vox is a good source, and I do look at Vox frequently. And you know, I I can say sources that I'm less comfortable with than I used to be, such as the New York Times, for a variety of reasons. And this started specifically with Maggie Haberman's reporting around Trump in the 2016 election. But what I would counsel people is go to a wide range of sources. And one of the great entry points to a wide range of sources is social media. If you are on social media and you're following people whose views seem to resonate with yours, see what kind of media sources they're following. There's lots of non-paywalled sources that are out there where you can get a great sense and learn to become a critical reader. When you learn things and you read things, don't just say, okay, this is the way that it is, because you're going to end up on The Daily Show one day being interviewed on the street saying, why do you believe this? Why do you believe this? Read a lot of things, question the sources, and come up with your own thoughts. And by the way, I also love the idea of using a notebook, using a journal, something like Evernote, or even tweeting to get your thoughts out in a way that's coherent and cogent. Because sometimes if you're formulating a tweet, and I do this every day, I'm going to tweet something and I'm looking at it being like, that doesn't sound right. It's just like, I know that's what I thought I believed a few minutes ago, but no, there's something wrong with that. I need to think about that some more. So be an active participant in dialogues that are going on. Don't turn on one channel, whatever that channel is, and say, that's what I believe the truth is, because you're being duped. There is no ultimate source of truth out there for you to consume. It's not that easy. It reminds me of one psychedelic experience that I had. I I consumed uh, half a gram of mushrooms and I went for a walk and we were walking through the woods and it was fall. It was November. It was a beautiful day. And I saw one leaf fall and I paid attention to it, which was kind of unique because in fall in Canada, leaves falling is so ubiquitous. It only becomes, almost becomes unmeaningful. And then I stopped and I tried to pay attention to all the leaves falling at the same time. And I realized that there were thousands of leaves falling at the same time. And I tried to be present enough to appreciate and watch all of these leaves falling. Uh, and then I caught myself being aware of the fact that I'm... I have a a line of sight of whatever degrees and like, I can't even keep track of just watching one piece of that, the leaves falling. What else is happening just in my line of sight that I am not aware of? It's probably 99.99% of everything that's happening in my line of sight. I am not aware of, I can't see it. I can't experience it. I'm not aware of it. And, And that's my, that's just right here, let alone the entire world, let alone through history. And it becomes very, very, became very, very clear to me that like, even our reports of history are gross distortions and have to be by definition inaccurate because even the people who were there and saw it, notwithstanding the fact that our memory is terribly fallible, missed 99.9999999% of whatever was happening right there. Um, and it, it was it was kind of a beautiful moment, but a terrifying moment because it realized that like truth is way more complex than we think it is especially lived in real time. It's great to be in the, in the woods and reflecting upon things. I go to the woods pretty much every single day and love that time. But when we're reacting and don't have time to process before we're being asked to not only form opinions, but to form views that could end up becoming political currency, 
that's a difficult situation for us as individuals and for democracy itself. So one final question uh, for you, because this started off as a podcast about psychedelics. Now it's expanding into perspectives, but uh, are, are you up to speed on what's been happening with the, the reemergence of psychedelics and the psychedelic renaissance that's happening right now? And if you have any thoughts on it, that's great. And if you don't, that's totally cool too. I absolutely am not and, and don't. I mean, the only things that I know are kind of what I've seen from you on social media and a couple of things that I've seen years ago on Tim Ferriss's podcast. So when we talked in the beginning about me being an expert on things, this is absolutely one thing where I can't even feign expertise. Thank you, Aaron. First of all, it's good to see you again. We haven't spoken since absolutely. basically you went to Berlin um, <laughs> and I send you the random text message out of the blue and you're like, who is this? Um, but anytime, uh, always happy to talk. Yeah, but I appreciate it. Thank you for being on here. Thank you for your insights. I think it's a meaningful discourse and I think it was uh, very nuanced uh, because we're, we're sharing perspectives and that's the problem with social media is that you just can't get all the key information that needs to be at least considered uh, into the conversation on a platform like Twitter. So hopefully Agreed. there's a, enough information for people to digest in this conversation. So, so thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Ron. Awesome. I've been doing this podcast thing for a couple of years now, and I have to say that this conversation with Aaron was the one that caught me most off guard. While we certainly agreed on the importance of nuance and dialogue, talking about Putin and Putin are very different conversations, I was surprised at just how cavalierly Aaron was open about what he doesn't know, that he was not an expert on the subjects we were discussing, but rather was just an informed, curious, analytical bystander. What caught me off guard in particular was that I was expecting him, even hoping he would come in, declare his expertise on the subject matter at hand, and definitively refute the comparisons that certain people made between Canada and Justin Trudeau and Nazi Germany or China. But in the end, I'm kind of glad he didn't. Reflecting back, I do believe that we all live and experience an objective truth in most circumstances, in all circumstances, frankly but that we as humans are constantly absorbing too much information to be able to truly appreciate the totality of the situation, to be able to then reflect it back honestly and accurately. And thinking about that, isn't that kind of what psychedelics are all about? Honestly reflecting on the circumstances around you? This was actually one of the key insights I took from that psilocybin-infused walk last year, that instead of factual knowledge, maybe we are just left to rely on our own analysis, instinct, and intuition to make assessments of situations outside of our immediate sphere. As Tom Robbins said, our individuality is all, all that we have. There are those who barter it for security, those who repress it for what they believe is the betterment of the whole society, but blessed in the twinkle of the morning star is the one who nurtures it and rides it in grace and love and wit from peculiar station to peculiar station along life's bittersweet route. I think that's true, but it is also important that people collect information, consider it, analyze it, and pay attention to the nuance of the circumstances before making determinations. And I'd ask that when you do come to a determination around the circumstances before you, do so consciously and keep in mind the impact that your viewpoints and actions will have on those around you and the entire world. Thank you for listening. 
As a quick reminder, please follow, rate, and review our podcast and sign up for our newsletter at fieldtripping.fm or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Field Tripping. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. Until next time, stay curious, breathe properly, and remember, every day is a field trip if you let it be one. Field Tripping is created by Ronan Levy. Our producer is Conrad Page, and associate producers are Macy Baker, Sharon Bella, and Alex Sherman. Special thanks to Quill Podcasting, and of course, many thanks to Aaron for joining us today. To learn more about all that we talked about, check out his writing or follow him on Twitter at Aaron Solomon. That's A-R-O-N-S-O-L-O-M-O-N.